This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Tish Harrison Warren, welcome to Viral Jesus. It was a season of ordinary sorrow in a compressed time frame. But during that, I just found it really hard to pray. And I had kind of theological seminary answers for what is called the Odyssey, the question of how can God be all powerful and good and yet bad things happen in the world. But I found them deeply emotionally unsatisfying. And kind of because of those questions, struggled with how do I trust God? Why why do we pray? Why talk to God? From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. Prayer is one of the spiritual practices that most of us, regardless of our religion, share. 79% of adults, according to the Barna Group, say they have prayed in the last three months. Barna also found that of people who had prayed in the last three months, 94% do so by themselves and 82% say when they pray, they pray silently. I found this fascinating because as a professor, I teach, by the way, at Andrews University, I remember the moment I first sat across from a student, and this would have been like 10 years ago, and I felt like I needed to not just say, I'll pray for you. I felt the Holy Spirit saying, no, Heather, offer to pray with them. I grew up in church my entire life. I have been praying my entire life. My dad was an evangelist, and I always tell people my childhood was spent in a van because every weekend I traveled, me and my family, with my dad from church to church to church. So I am so used to being in a religious environment, and yet I still felt uncomfortable asking someone if I could pray for them out loud. I felt so uncomfortable that I can remember fumbling around, even trying to get out the words to ask if they would allow me to serve them in this way. Now I pray for students out loud almost every single day I'm on campus, but I wasn't surprised to read the Barna Group findings and discover that I wasn't alone and feeling like prayer was this really super intimate personal thing that I did with God by myself. In fact, according to Barna, only 2% of Christians say they pray audibly with other people or in groups. Our guest today is someone who will take us deeper into that conversation, Tish Harrison Warren. Tish Harrison Warren is a priest in the Anglican Church in North America. She is the author of Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life, Christianity Today's 2018 Book of the Year, and Prayer in the Night. This is her latest for those who work or watch or weep, which again was Christianity Today's 2022 Book of the Year. Currently, Tish writes a weekly newsletter for the New York Times, and she is a monthly columnist for Christianity Today. So first of all, Tish, I want to congratulate you. Congratulations on winning Christianity Today's Book of the Year with Prayer of the Night for those who work or watch or weep. You won their Book of the Year in 2018 with Liturgy of the Ordinary. I read that book, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life. So Tish, we are excited to have you on the podcast as an award-winning book author. Super excited to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, it's very exciting. I mean, it was, it's a great surprise to get Book of the Year again and for Prayer in the Night, which is a book that means a lot to me. So thank you. I like to open every interview by reading something back that my guest has written. And, and you're on a break, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. So I had to do some digging here. You're on a Twitter break, but mm-hmm. something you said that I think really encapsulates your social media presence. And I'll explain that in a second. But you say this. My husband taped a cleaning schedule for himself to the wall to try to have daily, weekly, monthly, yearly goals, and my two-year-old ripped it down and tore it to shreds. This is a metaphor for our life and the possibility of a clean house. 
I think part of your social media presence that is super refreshing is that you aren't just this award-winning author and Anglican priest. You're also a human being. And I think you do well. I think you do really well at like building community around the fact that, hey, like I'm a person and and I read things that make me mad. And so I'm going to talk about that right now. Or here's where I'm feeling right now in pain. Or here's what I'm excited about. So talk to us about that choice to show up online in your full personhood. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, especially because I feel like you've caught me. It's interesting to do the podcast at this moment because you've caught me in a time where I'm just like very much rethinking everything about online life. And I guess I'm wondering if it's even really possible to bring our whole person to the online world. Everything. Talk to me about that. What do you mean by that? (laughs) Well, I mean, everything is curated. I mean, I don't mean that I spend hours and hours thinking about my online persona. I really have spent very little time There's been nothing strategic about my online life at all. I mean, I've never thought, how do I want to present myself? I just sort of, um, as you kind of said, I mean, I think I just shared um, my thoughts, honestly, and, you know, funny stuff with my kids, like you just said, or things I believe or things I'm thinking about. But at the same time, that's a really different kind of relationship than... um, an embodied, fully orbed relationship that we have with people in our lives. So it's one thing for me to say, isn't this funny that my husband put these cleaning goals on the wall and my son ripped it up? Um, I mean, it was, it was very funny. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was such a metaphor that he set these goals and the two-year-old was like, no. Um, But, uh, that's a really different thing than, you know, being a buddy of mine and showing up in my house being completely in a wreck and um, and not being able to sort of curate which parts of that you see or don't see. Um, mm. And so even I think, again, like in some ways, I think it's true to say everything I've done online everything I've done in my whole career, I mean, not just online, but with writing and has sort of been um, really organic and a surprise and has grown really sort of naturally um, without a lot of strategic input from me, it feels like. At the same time, everything we choose to share and don't share online subconsciously or consciously is a choice. And it's a really different kind of relationship than we have with anyone in the embodied world around us and it, close friends, but even, even your kind of a neighbor that sees you uh, walking down the street with no makeup when your two-year-old is screaming and hitting a sister, that's a different kind of vulnerability than you ever have online, unless you're doxxed or something. You entirely share what you choose and what you don't choose to share about your life. Talk to me a little bit about your social media growth. Was there a time that you were screaming out into the void, that you were tweeting or posting and there were very few people reading it? Like, do you think that was your more authentic self? That's interesting. Well, so I've always been um, kind of a late adopter of everything, like of of all kinds of media. I mean, on the spectrum of technophobia to technophilia, <laughs> I definitely lean more towards the technophobia part. I I'm skeptical of it. I'm also just like your grandmother, or probably your great grandmother, with you with technology. I just sort of am like, Ugh. like. My favorite technological device in the world is pencils, like pencils and paper. I use, <laughs> I have like five at all times. I probably have on one on me right now. Um, so I just like old school analog life more. Um, I mean, I'm 42. So in some ways, I'm not a quote unquote digital native. So we got the internet. Um, when I was in late high school, early college. So quite a lot of my formation was without that. Because I was, particularly my 20s, wanting to be kind of part of like radical Christian movements and living in simplicity and living in 
community and um, trying to be thoughtful about consumption and money and things like that, I always tended to be, like I said, like a really late adopter. So I remember probably in a somewhat prideful way, um, I was like the very last person to get a cell phone. Um, (laughs) And and then later, I was really late to get a smartphone. I mean, I eventually do get all of these things. You're just a watcher. You want to see first. It's not like I'm a purist. I'm just, I'm just... (laughs) I'm 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 cautious and I'm like I am deeply allergic to anything that feels like a trend and so it ends up where I end up adopting the trends like seven years after they've passed (laughs) and then it's retro and you bring it back I would like to say like throwback (laughs) I'd like to say so I just don't adopt the trends but that's probably not true um because trends often they're trends because there's some goodness to them. It just takes me like a long time to get to the point where I feel like it's no longer trendy and then I can adopt it. So I was on Facebook um, even before I was really writing. And that was largely about sharing um, just pictures of my family or thoughts from my life. So that was mostly just personal. And still to this day, I only let people be my Facebook friends who I've met personally. There's probably some few exceptions, but it's people that I've like have huge, There's huge connection. overlap with. Yeah. Right. Like, like that is, you know, good friends with my best friend or something. And that's mostly about privacy. I mean, I don't share pictures of my kids. I've, I've decided not to share pictures of my kids on the open web. And I'm happy to talk about why. And I have pictures of my kids and you could figure out where I live. You could figure out where my kids go to school on my personal Facebook page. So I, so I typically don't share that unless I know you. Here's what I'm saying. I don't remember when I got on Twitter. I don't remember the year, but I was already writing fairly consistently without being on it. And essentially, people in the publishing world and elsewhere said, like, you need to get on this because you need some public place to share your work. If you, It's fine if you have a private Facebook page that you only let people on you know. You're at the point in your career where you need to have some way that people can read something that you write online and interact with it. So when I joined Twitter, I was already writing for Christianity Today, but I didn't have like an enormous following. I mean, I still don't know when, when do you count? I know. What counts as an enormous Twitter? The goalposts just keep moving. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I've several, I don't know. I don't know how many Twitter followers I have, but it's a lot of compared to what I used to have. But I mean, I have friends that have hundreds of thousands of followers. I will say there was definitely a shift, um, that occurred and my friend's Michael Ware actually helped me understand this and put this into words for me, is that when I first started having a public kind of social media presence, it was mostly people who read my stuff and genuinely wanted to dialogue with me about it, mm-hmm, like wanted mm-hmm. to connect. Well, let me say what, what the shift is first, and then, I, and then I'll analyze maybe why. But it was genuinely people that wanted to kind of talk about the work. Um, as my career has grown... And particularly once I started writing for the New York Times, but even before then, once I got to a certain amount, maybe I'm making this number up arbitrarily, but somewhere around 20,000 followers, there was a shift um, where it wasn't so much people, peers kind of wanting to engage with my work. It was, it, there was a lot more of wanting to sort of like lash out or take me down or quote unquote mm. punch up it sort of shifted and it became less fun. So some of that might have been shifts in the culture, right? Like I started Twitter before Donald Trump was elected. I think our entire culture has become more polarized. Mm -hmm. Um, To the extent that social media allows people to connect with like-minded people or, or even maybe not like-minded, but like-hearted people, people that might believe completely different things than you, but are curious in the same ways you're kind of curious or I really love that. that term. Yeah. Like-hearted. I, Did you just make that up? No, I don't think so. I think, I've never heard it. I don't, I, might have, I don't know where I got it. That might be from Alan Jacobs. Um, I'm not That's sure. That's really good. 
Yeah. So at one point it was that. And then to the extent that social media is about connection, it can be this healthy way of connecting with folks around things, around kind of a mutual spirit of of curiosity and interest. But social media can also very much be about grandstanding or um, platform building or kind of establishing a public identity. And within that, social media um, can very much become competitive or people finding their identity by kind of taking down other people or angry and reactive. Um, And I'm going to go out on a limb here because I think this might be criticized by others, but I I think this is worse for women. I I think that women, people often sort of want to take down other, Mm -hmm. other Mm -hmm. women. And um, yeah, I I don't want to make it like social media is always this toxic place because it, it hasn't been. Sometimes it's fun, or and I've made actual friends that we first connected through social media. But I am saying that I think something shifted, and I'm not sure if it's a change just in the culture or if it was a change that as one gets more successful and one gets more Twitter followers, it becomes less about connection and more about folks mm-hmm. um, who want to kind of build their platform by being critical of of someone that does have a, a lot of followers or that sort of thing. So I I don't know. Um but I will say what what Michael helped me kind of understand is that that there was a shift in how I had to use social media at some point. There's an idea in Twitter that I really don't like. Um in our broader culture right now about sort of punching up and punching down, right? It's not okay to punch down, but it's okay to punch up. What that essentially means is that um, we can justify cruelty to anyone that we consider, quote unquote, punching up. Mm. Um, And so uh, once I started working for the New York Times, I think because I worked for the New York Times, um, all punching was always in people's minds, punching up. But I'm a big believer in kindness, whether it's quote unquote up or down. Yeah. <laughs> I, just think, I think that the call is to kindness to all people. Uh, and that, of course, doesn't mean not disagreeing, not speaking truth. I just don't see any biblical warrant for cruelty to some and kindness to others. You recently wrote a book called A Prayer in the Night. For those who work or watch or weep, which I'm excited to talk to you about because it's probably been my greatest focus the last year and I hope um, something I can keep growing and expanding in this year. Talk to us about that book and why you wrote it, what you hope people understand about prayer. Yeah. I wrote the book. I set out to write a different book and this book came to me and wouldn't leave me mm. alone. The analogy I use is it's like a cat that like followed me home and like just would <laughs> not leave me alone. <laughs> so um, I essentially wrote this book out of my own struggles with how do, how do I trust God? And it mm. um, comes from a season of my life where things were difficult. I lost my dad Um my, my father died, and then I had two miscarriages and a cross-country move in the span of about six months. So wow. I say this every time. There's kind of a genre of Christian work that is about kind of catastrophic loss, loss of a spouse or a, a child um, or a, like a terminal illness. You know, it's this sort of life-dividing events often very traumatic events and this wasn't that and i so this book is more about ordinary suffering i mean many of us move and deal with the loneliness of that we all lose um parents if we live long enough and um miscarriage is unfortunately very common so it was a season of ordinary sorrow in a compressed time frame but during that i just found it really hard to pray And I had kind of theological seminary answers for what is called theodicy, the question of how can God be all powerful and good and yet bad things happen in the world. But I found them deeply emotionally unsatisfying and kind of because of those questions struggled with how do I trust God? Why why do we pray? Why talk to God? These are questions lots of people deal with. So I'm really happy that you're tackling them. Yeah. 
so I wrote the book out of that. It's about sort of how I came back to prayer, um, which was largely through prayers received from the church. Uh, but I, it's not primarily kind of a how to pray book. It, it's the way um, that I use a prayer in the Book of Common Prayer, which is a book that Anglicans use in worship, and I'm Anglican. Um, that it begins, keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night. It's from Compline, which is a nighttime prayer service. Um, and I talk about how difficult nighttime became dear, for me during that season. Mm. So I take this one prayer and I kind of use the framing of this prayer to get into these bigger questions of theodicy. How do we trust God? How can God be good when bad things happen in the world? Why do we, how do we continue to be a Christian when we find it very difficult to be a Christian? Um, if you, if you kind of want to keep walking in the way of Jesus, but aren't sure, you know, you trust God, how do you keep going? Um, how do you relearn what it means to trust and believe in God after disappointment with God mm-hmm. and disappointment in your life? So these are kinds of the questions that I brought to this book and this prayer allowed me to get into those questions in sort of practical ways. The question of theodicy can become really theoretical and I didn't want that because I don't think in the end we want a systematic theology of why bad things happen. I mean, we, we don't get one. Like this, God could have given us that in the scriptures right. and he doesn't. What we want is, is to know God to know if God is worthy of trust and action. I mean, we want to see things redeemed. We want to see things made right. And so as we are waiting and longing for that, what do we do with all of that longing and disappointment and hope? And that's kind of where I go with the book. You do prayer walks, which is something that I have been doing for, I don't know, probably the last three or four years now. Can you talk to us about that practice and why you engage in that? Yeah. Wait, is that in the book? How did I was so I was I was stalking you, Tim, preparation <laughs> for this and watching several of your other interviews. Oh, okay. All right. I was like, how did you know? um, <laughs> see this is why you need to be more I, cautious about what you do online? <laughs> People are out there knowing all of your information. Yeah, that's fine. I'm okay with you knowing about prayer walking. Um <laughs> It's funny because, I mean, I don't consciously go on prayer walks a lot. I go on walks a lot. I walk every day, basically. And I pray while I'm walking. So maybe maybe that is a prayer walk. (laughs) It's funny because I, growing up, you know, prayer walks were this specific thing where you like go to a neighborhood to pray for those things. But I just walk and pray a lot. I mean, partly that's helpful, I think, because whatever else we are, humans are deeply embodied creatures. And so moving, walking helps me to pray. I mean, and to do every, it helps me to focus on God. It helps me to hear, I think, from God. When I um, am stuck writing, I very often will go on a walk. It's that bilateral brain activity. You use your left and right brain walking. The thing that feels stuck will become unstuck. I'll get an idea, right? Or I'll realize how to fix something or... um, So I do think, I mean, there's been a lot, lot written about walking and the idea that God travels at three miles an hour, you know, that, which is the, no, I've wait, 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 (laughs) I have never heard this. I have never heard this. I need to understand. (laughs) No, this this is not my idea. Humans walk at about three miles an hour and there's all this sort of interesting ideas of what what that means that like, like that's about the rhythm, the same kind about the, um, each step is about the same, um, rhythm as a heartbeat. Like there's, there's a lot of rhythm in walking. Okay. And so the phrase God moves at three miles an hour is the idea that, um, God travels at a quote unquote human pace that, mm. well, Andy Crouch is coming out with a book that I highly, highly recommend. Um, it's called the life 
that we are looking for. I think that's what it's called. <laughs> I'm recommending a book that I don't know the name of. The light, the life that we're looking for. I think that's what it's called. It's not out yet. Um, but one of the great things about my life and job is that I get to read some of these cool books before they come out. Um, to endorse them. But um, but he talks about this and that we want superpowers, right? To travel faster and farther. Um, but at the end of the day, we're like unbelievably human. And God often... You're going to make me start sobbing. Walks. I'm this. <laughs> um, exactly what I need to hear right now. Yeah. Sob away. So, uh, <laughs> and it's... And God moves slowly. I mean... You do not have to be in the Christian life long to realize how much it feels like we are waiting yeah. and how much it feels like, um, I mean, I say all the time, I just wish God would shoot me an email. I just wish God would send me an email and let me know what's going on. But I do think like the Lord meets us more like walking than like email. I mean, yeah. in a slow Walk relational way. So I think because we're irreducibly human embodied creatures walking um is a gift right and yeah. i mean when you think about all of human history has basically been at the speed of walking has been at 3 miles an hour and so i think that involving our bodies in prayer is often an extremely helpful exercise um because prayer our temptation right is to think that prayer is primarily a mental invisible reality. Right. Um, but it's not, right? It, we bring our whole selves, including our bodies and our hearts and our mind, to God's whole self, who we believe continues to be incarnated in the person of Jesus. And so um, this isn't just sort of like mental thought sent to a cloud, but uh, this is a God working among his people in this very long stream of conversation and work that we get to step into in the course of prayer. So um, prayer rocks are great because you see what's out in the world, right? You, like you, you feel the cold, you mm -hmm. feel the warmth, you see a neighbor that you can then pray for, you see a sunset that you can give God glory for. So I feel like it, it kind of rattles me back into reality a lot of times. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. The opposite of this kind of is sitting with God in silence. Mm -hmm. what, if, what do you experience as you pray in silence? You can always do a prayer walk in silence as well. Which right? I have done as well, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I So I talk a, quite a bit about silent prayer in um, prayer in the night because growing up, I grew up Southern Baptist and I think prayer always looked like it was very wordy. It was sort of me <laughs> telling my thoughts to God, yeah. which is what I thought prayer was. And yeah. so um, when people talked about growing in prayer or anything like that, I never understood what they meant. As an 18-year-old, that's what I was hearing. Like, you need to pray more often, which, um, you know, I probably do need to pray more often, but, um, but it feels like there's a limit. Like at some point I need to do my homework. Like it's right. Like at some point I need to go to sleep. And 
I don't see prayer as this very wordy conversation between two people. It, I see prayer as opening ourselves to God's work and presence in, in every mm. area of our life, which we can do all the time, right? Waking and, and sleeping and with words and without. And so silent prayer has been particularly helpful um, in teaching me that I think silence is particularly helpful for writers and speakers and Christian leaders um, because we are so verbal and we always, we're the answer people, right? Like I'm supposed to say wise things about God. Um, And silence in that sense is humbling in that you realize by being still, you're not bringing God anything. You're not informing God of anything. God doesn't need my words. And it's sort of, I think primarily for me, silence is humbling in that it takes away my grip on how well I'm able to articulate my internal life or ask God for the right things or, or say the right words. Um, and it makes me feel smaller and I simply listen for the Lord and not audibly. I mean, maybe God's never spoken to me like that, but um, for kind of what emotions or memories or ideas kind of come up in me. And then I just sort of offer them silently to God. So practicing silence has been really helpful for me in that. So this is going back to social media, which I'm doing intentionally because of this podcast. <laughs> I do feel like Social media is loud. It's constant. It's very, very verbal. And even the stuff like Instagram, whether it's verbal or image driven, there's a lot of input, right? It's just content, content, content. And so we get used to this sort of bombardment of thoughts, images, and ideas. And it's, um, it's addictive, but it's also, um, it's also overwhelming. And, and I think sitting in silence has been a good antidote to that. One very interesting thing is I completely got off Twitter in November. I mean, it's blocked. Like <laughs> we use a, like a filter to block porn and stuff on the computer. And we like listed you added it as Twitter as what a filter. Okay. Yeah. It's blocked like porn. Like I cannot get to it. I cannot see even when, uh, cause people will send me some on the phone, like, Oh, this is something someone <laughs> said about you, or this is an interesting article. And I'll like click it. And it's like page cannot be seen. So I have to write them back and be like, um, I cannot see this. So I <laughs> screenshot it or just don't tell me about it. Um, but what's been interesting I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but when I was on Twitter, when I got silent, what would come to mind often is tweets, like things other people had said, that's really funny, or I can't believe they said that, or, oh, that's so annoying, or like, ooh, I just had an interesting idea about the world. I could tweet that. I mean, it was sort of like my own. Yeah, I, I my know. Own Twitter <laughs> writer, the writer, Twitter writer in my head would write interesting things in silence. I mean, the Lord did meet me in the midst of that, and you could write it down or just let it go and then move on. And it took about a month for that to stop for me, but it has. Uh, that's what's interesting is that now that I've been off for a while, when I am silent it is easier to get my brain silent. Mm. I feel like I still am distracted. That's been one of the things I've learned getting off Twitter is that I can go to, it's not like, and now my life is this spiritual (laughs) bliss and Zen of focus because I just can find other things to be distracted by. Um, and other things even on the internet to distract me. But I do feel like the, Twitter writer in my head has quieted, which has, which allows silent time to be a little more, to, I, I'm having more brain quiet in, in a good way. Um, my thoughts get quiet more quickly. I feel like. I have to say this as a communication professor, part of what I love saying to my students is you guys, 
excellent communicators, it's not about being an excellent speaker. It's about being an excellent listener. Hmm. It's about That's inviting right. that silence and, and paying attention to what is happening around that you, is. not having to be the answer all the time. That's what literally we like communicators who listen. Mm-hmm. And so you're just reminding me of that when it comes to my own prayer life to not be afraid or shrink away from the silence of it. That That is what's making me a good communicator is by mm-hmm. just listening. Yeah. I've done this new thing this season where I ask people on Twitter. So I'm sorry. I asked people on Twitter what they could ask you. (laughs) I'm not not anti-Twitter. I I really am not. And I'm just figuring it out. And I I went off very reluctantly, more or less, because I have a close group of friends um, who who told me to. I mean, they sort of... It was almost... It was like... I I call it the intervention. intervention. That's what I call it. (laughs) They would disagree with that. But... um, I mean, honestly, it kind of was. So yeah, so I'm rethinking things. I don't want Twitter to become the new, we don't drink, dance, or chew, or in date boys who do, <laughs> right? Like just the new way to to show off our righteousness. It's a, so I'm not anti-Twitter, so you don't have to apologize. That and you I, I want to repeat Twitter. something too that you just said. I just want to repeat it for our listeners because every guest, I think almost every guest I've talked to this season has a community of people in real life who help them navigate their online life. And I just think that that's really important. We just heard you say it. Every person I've talked to says that they have people that they submit to when they say, hey, I don't think you should do that. Or I yeah. don't you should take that down. That is so important to understanding that it's not just this totally online important. thing, that we have real life people that walk through this with us. Okay. Here's some of the questions that came in for you. Um, Lance J. Orton said, how have you seen your own prayers of pleading with God transform your heart towards others? around you. Wow. That's interesting. Of my own prayers of pleading with God transform my heart to others. Um, hmm. I would like to say that it has filled me with compassion for my enemies, but I'm not sure that it always actually has. Um, but I think that I'm closer to it than had I not hmm. had times of deep pain. I do think that it's made me more compassionate to folks who are angry with God. I think that um, mm. pleading with God and being disappointed, it's helped me understand that this living out the faith is really hard. And um, and I hope that's made me kind of more patient with people who, who've walked away from the faith or who've struggled. Um, man, Either life humbles you or it hardens you. It's one or the other. Like there's so much suffering that you either are humbled by it in a way that allows you to rely on God and love people and be softer, um, or you get harder and bitter. Um, I hope that the ways that I have pleaded to God are humbling. And so, uh, and I think that humility is actually what allows us to love other people, especially other people that are, that have hurt us or that are weak, that are difficult. Right. And so, um, maybe that. Matthew Pod says, how does she balance between the values of liturgical Christian practices and the more spontaneous freeform practices common in most evangelical settings, especially when she's engaging in prayer? Oh, that's interesting. In terms of practices, I'm like, let's just take the best practices of all traditions, Um, which is part of why I'm Anglican is I'm like, I want to be in a place where I can, you know, absolutely be about the early church fathers and the Catholicity of the church which some people on Amazon and stuff on reviews of my books have been like, she seems really Catholic. Um, (laughs) But also can like absolutely go to a Pentecostal church and worship Jesus and take communion with my Southern Baptist friends um, and believe that what's happening is more important than they realize, but I'm still taking communion with them. So I think, man, I've just, I've been really formed by evangelicalism. I can't help it. it. Even if I said tomorrow, like I'm, whatever. I'm, 
I mean, I don't know. Like, because I have become more liturgical and changed theology in some ways, some folks would say that what I have experienced is a deconstruction. That word is used so lightly now that it's almost sort of like anyone that that rejects parts of evangelicalism, which I do. I think evangelicalism is absolutely addicted to trends. It's way too addicted to marketing. It can tend to be very shallow. Uh, It can, of course, tend to be completely formed by kind of white um, Christian nationalism. Um, So there's things about evangelicalism that I reject. Yet at the end of the day, like, when someone sings, how great is our God? I like, can't keep my, I'm like, <laughs> holding my hands down. I just want to worship and lift my hands. And it was like, I, I, I look like I went to passion. Um, but Louis Giglio's passion. I look like a person that did that because I did. So I have been shaped by evangelicalism for good and for ill. One of the problems uh, with evangelicalism is that it always wants to sort of the wheel. And this isn't my idea. Stanley Harawas talks about this a lot. Evangelicals feel like everything needs to be new. It feels like it sort of has to invent everything whole cloth or make things new, which there's thousands of years of Christians that have followed Jesus in all different cultures and languages that we can actually learn from. I think that evangelicalism exhausts itself and exhausts people in it by always trying to kind of... um, gen up our own worship experience Mm. or emotion or ardor. And I think that's a problem with evangelicalism. At the same time, I think mainline Christianity and even like Anglican Catholic liturgical Christianity, what it can, um, I'm all for ritual and I'm all for liturgy. I mean, if you read my stuff, that's obvious. I argue clearly and intensely for that yet it can fall into dead ritualism, which is also not, that's not helpful, right? If we have no catechesis, for instance, we have no teaching and we just have this, these practices, it won't, they'll be really empty. So I am really for holding all the passion, the kind of heat of evangelicalism Mm. um, with the deep stability and roots of Catholicity And I think those are both gifts from God. And I think we see that really clearly in places like Nigeria and Kenya, um, where you have liturgical worship that also is really animated and enthusiastic and alive. Or Emilio Alvarez, there's a Pentecostal movement that's bringing back liturgical forms. And it's been really beautiful to see that sort of melded and come together. So I, I try to hold both. And um, what evangelicals need to be pushed on often, not, not always, is that spontaneity and the Holy Spirit are not the same thing, right? I, this is the, I mean, the ultimate kind of stupid example of this is if you've ever been in an evangelical service or sermon that said, you know, I had a, I had something planned, but the Holy Spirit, you know, told me to throw that out and I'm just going to wing this, you know, or whatever. And I'm always like, well, why couldn't the Holy Spirit have just told you like yesterday, like three hours ago? Like why? But it's a, it's a way that we associate whatever is spontaneous with the Spirit itself and whatever is planned or known as not with the Spirit, which doesn't make any sense. I mean, why can't the Holy Spirit work in the church over time? Jesus walks three miles per hour. Right, exactly. (laughs) Over millennia, you know. Right. um, So, uh, so, yeah, evangelicals need to stop confusing spontaneity with the Spirit. TEJ Design says, I've just started reading her book, A Prayer in the Night, and it's hitting me in a wonderful and profound way. I don't have any questions at this point, but I just wanted to express great gratitude for her writing it. Titch Harrison Warren is the author of Prayer in the Night for those who work or watch or weave, which again is Christianity Today's 2022 book of the year. I'm just saying you can get Prayer in the Night wherever books are sold. Tish, I end every interview asking people this question. Virtually all credible historians, Christian and non-Christian alike, agree that there is plenty of evidence 
that there was a man named Jesus who actually lived and walked this earth 2,000 years ago. How can we, 2,000 years later, best communicate who Jesus was Mm. and what his mission is today? Wow. That's such a good question. Now I want to hear all of the answers of all the people on your podcast. They have, there's been so many different <laughs> answers. How can we best communicate that? Yeah. So first we best communicate that by being deeply, deeply formed by the story of Jesus through the scriptures, but also the presence of Jesus through encounter mm. with God through the Holy Spirit. So we first have to be people that are shaped by this story. Um, And then we go into the world, into our bedrooms, into our kitchen tables, on the online space, into the real world space as people shaped by this. And we joyfully do the work God has given us to do, which might be taking care of our little toddler where no one's going to see it. Or it might be writing because it's we love to do that. Or it might be being a teacher or an engineer or whatever kind of our work is. It might be like hanging out with your neighbor. And so I don't just mean like professional work. I think that part of that is, I used to have a mentor that said, um, evangelism is being one person. What, what they meant is that we're the same people around our non-Christian friends and our Christian Mm -hmm. friends. We're the same people around our family as we are around the church people, right? We're we're people of integrity, right? We are integrated people. And so I think we have we we receive the prayers and the scriptures and the practices of the church. We're formed and shaped by the story. And then we are integrated. We're people who have that integrated in every single part of our life. So then we just walk through the world being one person, one person in every setting. And that is evangelism. That's what it means to communicate this message. Now, that said, I want to put a little asterisk on that, that that doesn't mean we don't need to do translation work. I hope I'm the exact same person when I'm writing for CT as I am for the New York Times. I'm the exact same person when I'm like talking to my best friend who's a Christian and deeply formed by this as I am talking to other friends that don't believe this at all. But I have to use words um, that make sense to them and not just words, but actually to have the gospel connect to the things they already care about. Um, I think we communicate the gospel best, not by saying kind of first and foremost, no to the culture, but saying yes. And, you know, yes, your longing Mm. for justice is right. Yes. Your longing for things to be whole is right. Yes. Your longing for the restoration of creation for things not to be just destroyed by industry or pollution. That is a good desire why? It's a good desire because God made this earth. It's a good desire because we are made for wholeness, because our longing for things to be set right is a deep longing in us by God that points to something true. So I think um, we let this story change our, our lives, and then we really humbly offer it to the world. Um, and we do not control whether the world rejects it or accepts it. We can't be sort of good enough or interesting enough or winsome enough to make this story compelling to people. Ultimately, that's the work of the Spirit. But I think we offer this in the most beautiful and truthful way we can to everyone around us and to the world. Thanks, Tish Harrison Warren, for joining us for this episode. We like to end every episode with a little segment I call Growing Viral, and this is where I give you some direct strategies you can implement into your real life that will help you be a better communicator and connector both online and off. Here is your Growing Viral homework. I want you to try going on a walk 
and praying out loud. Join the 2% of people who pray out loud. For me, that just looks like getting my body moving and talking to God out loud. My students know that now if they come sit in my office and, and the weather's good, right? I'm in Michigan, so we very rarely have good weather days. But if they come to me and the weather's good, I'll say to them, okay, let's get up. Let's go bring this before the Lord. We're going to make a lap around this entire campus, and we're just going to pray together out loud over your life. We're going to ask God to move, and we're going to see what happens. And then we go on a walk, and we take turns just saying whatever the Lord puts in our hearts to say together in community in that moment. I also have been moved since my conversation with Tish to start spending time sitting with God in silence. After listening to her in this conversation that you guys just heard, I just realized that God can't speak. I'm a communication professor, and here's what I know. Listening is super important. So much of our communication is actually our ability to listen. And I had to challenge myself after listening to Tish, and I was like, do I listen to God? Am I sitting in silence before the Lord, or am I always talking? Why wouldn't I sit invite the presence of the Lord to fill my heart and just listen and see what I hear. So when you pray this week, I want you to either try moving around and saying something out loud as you claim ground in your life and ask God to claim ground in your life before him in prayer, or why don't you try being still and seeing if God moves through you. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Next episode, we will talk to one of my favorite pastors and teachers, Rich Velotis. I'll see you next week for another conversation where a Viral Jesus guest talks and you and I listen so we can learn. I love growing with you on Viral Jesus. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.